This edition of Midori House was first broadcast on the 12th of December 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Sir Graham Brady has confirmed that he has received 48 letters from Conservative MPs, so there will now be a vote of confidence in my leadership of the Conservative Party. I will contest that vote with everything I've got. Still Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, unless you're listening to this as a podcast, in which case anything could have happened by now. My guests Ed Stocker, James Chambers, Thomas Lewis and Kenji Hall will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Donald Trump's longtime lawyer finds out what the association has cost him. China arrests a Canadian to see how they like it. And Tokyo argues over what to call its new train station and its Olympic volunteers. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. It's a special edition with our bureau team all here in London. Welcome all to the programme. But first, however tempting it is to just ignore British politics until it pulls itself together, it has been another one of those days. The Prime Minister, Theresa May, will this evening face a vote of no confidence from her own party. In public, a majority of Tory MPs have said they will back her, but the vote is a secret ballot. And you know what? It's not entirely unheard of for some of those casting their lots to say one thing in public and then do something else entirely in private. Here to bring us up to speed with the latest, an enterprise with which we can only wish her well, is the author and journalist Terry Stiasny. Um, Terry, I don't know where to start. Basically, why is this happening? This is happening uh, basically because... uh more than 48 Conservative members of Parliament wrote to the chairman of what's called the 1922 Committee, which is the body representing all Conservative backbenchers, saying that they weren't happy with her leadership and that therefore they were going to challenge this leadership. That was announced this morning. Um, As we speak, uh, the voting has just started. This is a pretty quick and can be a pretty brutal process. Uh, So Theresa May has to win more than 50% of the vote, uh, she has to win a majority uh, to stay. If she wins that vote, she can't be challenged as prime minister for another year. If she loses the vote, um, then she automatically has to uh, resign as the leader of the Conservative Party and they start a new leadership contest. And we've also just heard in the last few minutes that she's been in to speak to those Conservative MPs uh, in Parliament and that she has told them that she doesn't plan to fight the next election, which, as things stand, is due to happen in 2022, but it could happen at any time before that. And also doesn't plan to is covering a multitude of sins there, clearly. Um, I'm... I, I don't really know where to go with this at this point anymore. Either. I'm, I'm trying really hard to sound, Terry, like I'm not past caring, but I'm... I'm I'm confessing, it's a struggle. Is it possible to suggest if she does have to go, what does that actually mean for Brexit? Can she stick to the timetable she set out, which is that there will be another vote before January 21st, though the the point of that does now appear increasingly elusive, and the UK will leave on March 29th as possible? Or if she wins, does she have more options, like revoking Article 50 or calling another referendum or flipping a coin or... Who knows what? 
if she does have to go, then I think the whole uh, schedule possibly changes. Uh, as her supporters have been saying throughout the day, uh, if they have to have a leadership contest uh, to elect a new leader of the Conservative Party and a new prime minister, um, then that was likely to mean that Article 50 is um, is certainly is certainly delayed. So they're, they're trying to scare the Brexiteers by saying you may not necessarily get to leave the EU at the end of March as you would like to do. Um, if she wins, I think she's still not entirely safe because most people seem to think that she possibly has got enough support to win, but she will know that there are lots of her own MPs who are very unhappy with her. And she's still got the problem of what deal she can get from the EU, whether she can get any changes, and whether she has got the votes in Parliament to get that through. Now, none of those things seem certain at the moment. So I think even if she gets through tonight, her position is still not a very strong one at all, to say the least. Teres Diasny, thank you for joining us. Um, Ed Stocker, just before we, we plough on to more comprehensible subjects, you, you, you represent Monocle and, and therefore this nation um, in, in, in the wider world. <laughs> Do you get a sense uh, as, as you travel that Britain's international reputation, which has been, broadly speaking, one for sort of solid common sense, is taking a, a bit of a ding? Yeah, I think to a certain extent you're probably right. I mean, the whole thing is a mess and people are trying to comprehend the the, the intricate details of the backstop uh, and seeing sort of uh, Britain, as it were, lurch from one crisis to the next isn't exactly doing anything uh, for its standing. I'm in the enviable position of lurching from one train wreck in the US to one in the <laughs> UK, so lucky me. Well, that does tee up seamlessly our next thank item, for, for which thank you, uh, Ed Stocker, our America's editor. I'm also joined now by our Toronto Bureau Chief, Thomas Lewis, and our Hong Kong Bureau Chief, James Chambers, isn't here yet, but will be imminently, I'm sure. Uh, and let's look now at Washington, D.C temporarily relegated to the status of second most absurdly dysfunctional capital in the Western world. Two of President Donald Trump's former retainers are facing the reckoning for their roles in this circus. Trump's long-serving personal attorney, Michael Cohen, has been sentenced for various malfeasances. The man who once said he'd take a bullet for Trump will take three years. Meanwhile, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn is hoping to avoid prison. Both are believed to have cooperated with various investigations into Trump. Um, Thomas, this is one of those days where you, I think we've become so inured over the last couple of years uh, to just how weird and bizarre and absurd this whole thing is that it just seems like the normal thing you sort of read out now, that the former national security adviser is desperately willing to admit to almost anything to keep himself out of prison, and the long-serving personal attorney of the actual president of the United States is going to do three years for felonies which the president directed him to commit. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's uh, as you say, a rolling mess. And I think had this been, any, well, if this was any other president, then these just one of these things would be enough to sort of change the game almost in its entirety. It raises a question that perhaps Ed will sort of touch on in a bit more detail, but this idea that, you know, this sort of Teflon coating on President Trump is really quite extraordinary, and it does raise questions that were raised during the midterm campaign that's looking 
at some of the sort of key sort of, you know, uh, centrist kind of Republicans and the leverage they have in their constituencies that nobody has used a single bit of their leverage to try and question this extraordinary presidency at all, that any kind of sort of extraordinary policy move is just sort of shoulders are shrugged and things move on. So I wonder if actually the fact that, you know, legal proceedings, legal sort of verdicts have been passed today, whether that actually does kind of sharpen the conversation for those Republicans. Uh, Ed, there's a line from All the President's Men which does circulate with increasing frequency on social media for obvious enough reasons, which it, which is that summation of events given to either Woodward or Bernstein. Woodward, I think, by deep throat in the, in the, in the shadows of the car park. And mm-hmm. I, I think I quoted accurately from memory which is the truth is these are not very bright guys and things just got out of hand. We are witnessing, aren't we, the the unravelling of a confederacy of dunces. Uh, That's one way of reading it. It certainly certainly could be true. I mean, look, Michael Cohen uh, has said that he was directed uh, by Donald Trump to do this. I mean, the fact that he's explicitly said that in court and he's been sentenced suggests, uh, I don't know, have we got something bigger coming? There's been so much speculation for such a long time about you know, the wrapping up of the, the, the Robert Mueller investigation. It really is, uh, as Tom was saying just now, this idea of Teflon coating, just kind of, or I don't know, a duck's back or something. It's just, you know, how does all this stuff fall off him? So, I mean, given the fact that someone the, the, has the been... duck would be a better president. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, undoubtedly so. <laughs> I wanted to. I think the notion, Andrew, that you raised about this kind of confederacy of dunces. I think what Donald Trump has been very successful in is, you know, convincing those who support him or kind of maybe half support him that actually, yeah, the whole world is against them and that he's the only flag bearer for them. I wonder, though, to go back to the point about these sort of these legal proceedings kind of coming to a head today with many investigations still open, whether that does sharpen the conversation for those supporters or if he's managed to erode the the kind of the, you know, the potency of the law kind of for, for those supporters that actually whether they won't really care, actually, that he can carry on quite successfully to behave as he's behaved. Well, I suspect we have a great deal more where that came from to look forward to. Uh, for now, let's look at the ongoing row, which is now verging on an outright spat between the United States and China via Canada over the arrest earlier this month of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou at Vancouver Airport. She was run in at the request of the US who want a word over alleged breaches of sanctions against Iran. In what seems unlikely to be a coincidence, China has now arrested a former Canadian diplomat, Michael Kovrig, on charges as yet unspecified. Kovrig was working in China for the International Crisis Group and is now himself, ironically, an international crisis. Um, James, uh, There is no way at all that this is a coincidence, is there? I wouldn't say so, no. It's interesting to to hear the former Canadian ambassador to China, uh, a guy called Guy St. Jack, talking about um, his experiences of dealing with the Chinese. He was ambassador for for four years between 2012 and 2016, during the time that this this chap, uh, Michael Covey, was working uh, at the embassy in Beijing. You know, and, and he says, you know, in China, there are no coincidences. This is a, a clear message being sent by Beijing to the Ottawa government. You know, you lock up one of ours and we'll lock up one of, one of, one of yours. So, uh, yes, you're right. There, there are no coincidences in China. Um, Thomas, I, I did enjoy the statement by Canada's public safety minister, Ralph Goodale, which is a, a masterpiece of, of disingenuous diplo speak. He says, there is no explicit indication at this moment of a link. 
Um, a, a, a statement which carefully crafted, obviously, to mean absolutely nothing at all. But is, is there any way he believes that? Um, almost certainly not. But I think what the Canadian government is trying to do is that obviously it's been drawn into this. We don't know kind of how willfully Justin Trudeau maybe a week ago said quite explicitly that he was made aware that this arrest was coming, that, but that there was no politics at play here. Well, Tr- Trudeau was trying to make the point, I suspect entirely correctly, that it's actually nothing to do with him. This is, this is an action of the police and the judiciary over which he, you know, has no real control. That is true, but he is sort of in between two stools here, between Beijing and between Washington. The US, Canada and Mexico, of course, have just signed pretty much uh, one of the most fraught kind of renegotiation processes, uh, probably in the, the political histories of any of those countries of recent years, at least, in the, the renegotiated NAFTA treaty. Um, you know, so Justin Trudeau, the Canadian government, they, they played a very hard game in that process and really lost a lot of American friends in that process, too. They've also, for many years, been trying to forge separate deals with Beijing. Beijing has also been uh, playing pretty sort of hard to get on those things. So, you know, Justin Trudeau, whether he wants to or not, and of course, this is a legal matter, um, but he still has to sort of, you know, placate sort of both sides really which I think is kind of an impossible task and I think you know the fact that a Canadian kind of figure now is kind of been arrested in, in China I think that does sort of sharpen the conversation um, for, for him too. Uh- James, Donald Trump has said, and I think as always with Donald Trump, we do have to consider the possibility that he just genuinely has no comprehension whatsoever of how anything actually works, has said he might intervene in the case, specifically that of the case of the Chinese executive who has been arrested in Canada. He is therefore explicitly just admitting that this, as he sees it, is part of the trade war, isn't he? It's yeah, de- definitely. But we should also kind of l- remember that uh, you know Huawei is meant to be technically a private company, but it also is so entwined with the the Chinese state. Indeed. So even though this is you know this is a, a pri- uh, the CFO of a private company being arrested in Canada, you know Huawei is is so uh, central to to the Chinese government what they're doing uh, abroad, trying to to push this company into new markets. That you know I guess it's naive to to, to think that this is uh, this should be separated from U.S. Uh, China relations. At uh, at this present time, you know, the, the Chinese president Xi Jinping has been quite tough on private enterprises. Um, but it was quite interesting in this case that the government, the Chinese government, were very quick to come out in in Huawei's defence. Uh, you know, they used various tactics, uh, saying, and one of them, the, the funniest, was actually when they said that the, you know, this is uh, upset or offended the the, the Chinese people. Um, so it that was a clear indication of of where. The relationship between Huawei and the state, uh, and you can tell it's very much got the backing of the Beijing government. Uh, Thomas, how is Canada likely to respond? Canada being Canada, the option of threatening to send in a gunboat's not not really open to them. But this this is clearly a a a fairly hefty swipe at Canada by China. They have to say or do something, but what? It is a hefty swipe at Canada, and it was interesting when James was just talking about, you know, Huawei's reach. You know, Trudeau had been facing kind of pressure from, you know, opponents of the company for for a long time that they were very worried about the sort of motives of why, you know, they wanted to build this infrastructure in parts of Canada, and he kind of pretty unsuccessfully, you know, sort of quelled those concerns and just sort of let the whole status quo go. So maybe in one sense, kind of this kind of slightly lets Justin Trudeau off the hook in terms of that particular particular issue. 
You, to go back to the statement you read earlier, Andrew, about it sort of being fairly hollow, I think those kind of things from Ottawa are sort of slightly, can be slightly classic in that they buy the government time. You see, you saw through the NAFTA re- renegotiation, you've seen through other sort of diplomatic initiatives that, you know, Christia Freeland, the foreign minister, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, they're very good at sort of, you know, giving sort of quotable kind of um, reasons for things. But actually, you know, it's not that clear what the substance or what the end game will be. So I think actually they're probably still figuring out exactly how they move next. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, and a revolving cast of Monocle 24 Bureau Chiefs. Coming up next, a look at 40 years of a global China. See that man sitting opposite you on the subway, lost in another world? Or that smart woman scribbling notes while having her flat white? Well, here's what links them. They're both listening to Monocle 24 via our free radio app that simply and seamlessly lets you tune in live or download shows for later enjoyment. Just think, you too could be settling back enjoying cultural nourishment in the form of the Monocle Arts Review, being briefed on the world of business with the entrepreneurs, or just enjoying great music with the sessions at Midori House. Come on, download the Monocle 24 app today. Stick on your headphones and have informed fun on the go. Monocle 24, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. Mention the name Funkhaus in Berlin and you'll be greeted with excited curiosity or a mysterious smile from those in the know. The former communist broadcasting house got a new lease of life when young musicians hunkered down. Monocle Films set out on a tour of the stunning studios and recording halls. Funkhouse on the same wavelength, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, and a veritable smorgasbord of Monocle 24 Bureau Chiefs, presently James Chambers from Hong Kong, Kenji Hall from Tokyo. I, I should make note as well to our, our listeners of just how splendid everybody is looking in anticipation of the Christmas party later this evening. It's Everyone's dressed like what I imagine it was like working for the BBC in about the 1920s. Uh, but it is, however, 40 years this month since one of the most significant policy decisions of our time was launched in deceptively humble circumstances. In Wenzhou, in China's southeastern alley stall holder called Zhang Huamei, who sold buttons and elastic bands, was awarded China's first license to operate as a sole proprietor. It was the beginning of an opening up to capital and to the world, which transformed China and a great deal more besides. In 1978, China's economy was slightly smaller than Spain's. Forty years later, it's maybe a decade from overhauling America's. Um, it is one of those things, James, isn't it, that you, you get used to the idea that China's there and it's a huge, great, big deal, but you don't have to think back very far to appreciate how quickly it has changed. Not at all. And there's there's plenty of diplomats who are in Beijing still who remember a time, you know, that time where there were millions of bicycles on the street and there were no cars. And you go there today uh, and it's quite the opposite. Uh, it's, as you said at, at, the, at the start, it has to go down as one of the biggest decisions of the 20th century, this one to uh, to open up China and allow private ownership of businesses. Um, you know, it's the, the, the anniversary of the, the meeting that, that was held uh, falls next week. Um, uh, and it's, uh, it's something that the Chinese have been uh, celebrating all year. 
you know, if you if you if you've been to China, been uh, traveling in China this year, you 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 won't have failed to notice all of the 40th anniversary stuff that's uh, been on the news, been in the in the on the television or in the newspapers. So uh, you know, China's making a big deal of this. Is it possible, do you think, to take a punt at, at what Deng Xiaoping would have made of China 40 years on from his ideas about opening it up? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting how, you know, he has been held up as, as such a hero in China for making this decision uh, in 1978 to uh, to change China's outlook. Um they have said, though, or people have, commentators have said that if it wasn't for him, you know, making this decision, then the Communist Party would not have lasted uh, as long as it has and wouldn't be still as strong as it is today. So I imagine if he was alive today, he would uh, still take a, a lot of credit uh, for that and be quite happy to see uh, his party in the situation, the position it is now. But what's interesting, you know, at the moment is is how his his legacy is is being revised by the current administration, um, you know, Xi Jinping is is kind of trying to position himself as a as a kind of a, a Mao figure, um, and so where Deng fits in that um, is unclear because uh, even though this should be a celebration of of what Deng did and 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 how he has created this this uh, Chinese capitalism, you know, well, with Chinese characteristics. Uh, Xi Jinping is trying to kind of appropriate some of that for himself, and this celebration uh, of this 40th anniversary is a much about is as much about pushing his thought and his uh, personality cult. Well, when you talk about a, a Deng Xiaoping personality cult, how do you see it being manifested in China? Is it, is it lots of him, you know, in in print or online publications? Are there posters and so forth? Are they, are they going full blown Chairman Mao on this, or, or less so? Well. You'd expect it to be all all about Deng, and you can buy little kind of statuettes of him and and, and posters, but it's not about the person. This is more about the policy. Uh, And um, they're not pushing him so much as they are pushing the policy. So it's a a policy cult rather than a personality cult. It's a policy cult, cult and uh, the the current president, uh, Mr. C, is trying to, I guess, insert himself a little in that in that history of the opening up and and take maybe you know take a bit of credit uh for himself and away from from deng and, and guess re- reduce deng's uh role uh, and his legacy in uh the you know communist party hierarchy so you know he he is not he is not as big um as one would expect but for the people who remember those those days he is still treated as uh, a legend and there's only so much of history that uh, can be airbrushed out well, I mean, I mean, certainly key to, I guess, his legacy now is that the Chinese Communist Party very much still exists, whereas a great many other communist parties, which looked in thriving health in 1978, not least that of the Soviet Union, uh, do not. But what, what's your sense of how the Communist Party is still maintaining that balance between allowing economic freedom and yet not having to deal with the long-anticipated answering calls for political freedom that, that usually historically accompany it everywhere else in the world? I think people were expecting, you know, a lot of the Western countries were expecting uh, Chinese people, once they got a little money, as you said, to, to agitate for a bit more uh, of political change and, and perhaps uh, push for democracy. Uh, but, you know, for, for those of us who travel to, to China, you just kind of realise 
how big a country it is. You know, y yes, they have a very strong communist party. They have a very strong central government. But, you know, if, if you're running a business in, in the west of China, in, in the likes of, you know, Chengdu or, or Yunnan province, you don't necessarily feel uh, the state in your day-to-day -day business. So as long as people, the Chinese people are allowed to, uh, you know, to make their money, to run their businesses and just get on with their lives, then for them, it doesn't really matter what, uh, what's going on in Beijing. James Chambers, thank you. And finally tonight, to Japan uh, and a to-do verging on an outright brouhaha over the name of a new station on the Yamanote Loop Line in Tokyo. There are those who object to the name Takanawa Gateway, who I think I saw opening for Exmile Deutschland at Subterranea sometime in the early 90s, on the grounds of length and or the English component and or the fact that the East Japan Railway Company ignored a name chosen by public vote, like ignoring things chosen by public vote is bad. Um, Kenji Hall from our Tokyo Bureau, uh, is this a, a, an argument which is, is gripping the pubs, bars and saloons of, of Greater Tokyo? Can, can you not set foot outside the Bureau without hearing people rowing in the street about Takanawa? On Gateway? the lips of everybody. <laughs> Am I overselling this somewhat? Slightly. <laughs> um, you know, this is about a brand new station on the Yamanote line. This is the main line for JR East in Tokyo. It forms a loop around the city. Um, it, this new station was designed by Kengo Kuma. It's, it's planned to open at least partially in 2020. Now, um, you know, it's the first station in, in more than 40 years, so it's a big deal. The problem is JR East asked the public for suggestions. And Never also, ever a good idea. Exactly. And as you, as you mentioned, asked them to vote on it. So they got about 64,000 suggestions. Uh, and the public had their say, and they wanted. That, that's a hell of a ballot paper. Or, or did they exactly. did, did they narrow it down, or was was they they narrowed it down to a short list? And at the top, so at the top of the list uh, that received the most votes was a more simpler version, Takanawa. Okay. And then number two was uh, Shibauda, and number three was Shibahama. There was no stationy McStation face. Uh, no, not at that point. Um, Takanawa Gateway was several ranks down the list. Um, and it, it, you know, garnered uh, significantly fewer votes than these three. And yet, for some reason, J.R. East just decided that, you know what, we're going to go with Takanawa Gateway. Have they explained why they have added the gateway suffix? Did, I mean, Takanawa strikes me as a perfectly handsome name for a railway station. I would agree with you. I would agree. And in fact, you know, as you mentioned, um, this brouhaha is over the <laughs> fact that it's uh, Takanawa Gateway. It's a Japanese and English mashup. Um, you know, this has been fairly trendy uh, in recent years. Um, Omotosando Hills, Toranamon Hills. There, there is a trend to do this, and yet um, some people see it as just plain old-fashioned. You know, um, when you look at the uh, buildings from 30, 40, 50 years ago, they're all named after, you know, French buildings and American buildings, and um, that sort of went out of vogue, you know, about 10, 20 years ago. And yet, you know, we're seeing a major railway company sort of bringing that back in vogue. But if the divergence is between Takanawa and Takanawa Gateway, what is to stop people just calling it Takanawa? Well, 
That's, that's a very good question. And that's probably I've what sol- we'll I've, end up... I've solved it. People of Tokyo, <laughs> I've, I've fixed the problem. You can, you can, you can thank me later. I'm, I, given that I am on such a roll now with solving Tokyo's problems for it, um, we do need to address a, a not dissimilar controversy about what is going to be called, or what is going to be called, what the volunteers for the Olympic Games in Tokyo in 2020 are going to be called. Um Again, this appears to be less straightforward than it might be. I don't see what the problem is with just volunteers or the Japanese translation thereof, but it's, it's not that simple. Well, the Japanese translation thereof would be volunteer. So it's essentially the same thing. Yeah, and That's there's right. there's nothing wrong with calling them volunteers. But for whatever reason, because, you know, they had these funky names for the volunteers uh, at the London Olympics and the Pyeongchang Winter Games... Tokyo felt the need. Did we to have do... funky names for the yeah, London yeah. volunteers? Yeah, so apparently the volunteers uh, for the 2012 Olympics here were uh, called games makers. I had wouldn't have known that. And for Pyeongchang, they were called the Passion Crew. Okay, that just sounds again like somebody who opened for Motley Crew in about <laughs> n- 1986. Um, so the four, the four I, I, from I have, Tokyo. I, I have genuinely no recollection of the London Volunteers being called that at all. Well, that's the thing. I, I'm sure in the end it's just going to be completely forgettable. While we're on the subject, the four finalists for the Tokyo Volunteers Go are Fieldcast, Games Anchor, <laughs> Games Force, and the inexplicable Shining Blue. Yeah, none of those are good. Yeah. Uh, so, so, and this as well, despite the fact that people insist on learning nothing from the recent experiences of the United Kingdom and the United States, they're going to put this to a public vote, right? Well, actually, the volunteers themselves are going to vote on this. Um, they get a chance to vote until I think it's uh, January 20th. And then uh, a few days after that, the Olympics Committee will announce a winner. Just finally, then... Uh, and you've got about 10 seconds. Where are Olympic preparations for the the Tokyo Games? This one actually is going to run on time and on budget, isn't it? Yes. Um, <laughs> mo- moving steadily forward, I think, is, uh, is what we can say at this point. OK, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Kenji Hall, James Chambers, Thomas Lewis and Ed Stocker and Terry Stiasny. That brings us to the end of today's show. It was produced by Carlotta Ribello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel. Bates. The Daily has more on the day's big stories, and there's been a lot of them at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening.